Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Stefan Bansell, CEO of Modern, are talking to Vonnie Quinn and Guy Johnson of Bloomberg Television. Uh, Lisa, talking about the uh, potential uh, vaccine that they are working aggressively towards, um, and that news really pushing the stock up, uh, as Vonnie mentioned, over 20% this morning. But I guess the key takeaway for me is the kind of the sense of timing here, getting into a phase two, um, you know, I guess by July, and then hopefully, if all goes well, having it available by year end. It's interesting, as uh, Vani mentioned, that the stock uh, has risen 22%. Goldman Sachs raising their target for the shares with one analyst saying that this initial study seems to have hit the mark. The question that I have, and maybe Max Neeson of Bloomberg Opinion can answer it, is does a first mover advantage when it, uh, with respect to the vaccine equate to profits given the political pressure to keep costs down? This is an issue John Farrow raised earlier this morning. I think it's an important one. Max Neeson joining us now. And Max, before we get into the details of the study, will the creators of the first vaccines make a lot of money? I, I think it's, um, it's a complicated question. Because Moderna especially is, is getting a big chunk of money from the U.S. government. And, and with that comes expectations, um, you know, that, that pricing will be moderate, that availability will be broad. And, and I think that that genuinely is going to crimp um, any profit that's available. On the other hand, if you actually successfully develop a COVID-19 vaccine, you will end up making some degree of money. You'll at least recoup your investment, probably more. And on top of that, you know, if it's Moderna, you can't imagine a better validation of of the company's technology if it was able to turn around a vaccine this rapidly. But I, I don't think they'll they'll be uh, able to price it at sort of the profit maximizing level. It'll be somewhere closer to cost and and a little bit on top of that. I would I would imagine. So, Max, one of the models, I guess what, I, what I'm thinking about and one of the questions I have is just distribution. Whenever a vaccine is uh, approved, are we going to need billions of doses for everyone on the planet? Or what's the thinking there? Because if it is something along those lines, it sounds like not you know, you're going to need multiple companies to get into the manufacturing and distribution game. How does that figure out? Yeah, you, you absolutely are going to need multiple companies and in all likelihood – multiple vaccines um, just because of the bottlenecks of, of, of manufacturing at such a broad level. You don't have to man- vaccinate everybody on the planet. You need to get at a level that, that makes uh, community transmission un- highly unlikely. That's somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent range. We're not exactly sure, um, you know, because this is a novel virus. But that still equates to billions of doses. So, yes, you will need multiple different manufacturers of multiple different companies, multiple different vaccines. Some require a cold chain to be refrigerated the whole time. That's tough in sub-Saharan Africa, so you may also need a, a more stable, a more shelf-stable vaccine. It's a lot of different things that factor into this. So the more the merrier in terms of manufacturing and, and number of vaccines. Max, can you put into perspective the success of this early phase trial? In other words, how much faith we can really place in this uh, indicating that the virus, that the vaccine will be effective in preventing sickness? So I, I think the really key word here is 
early, and, and I'm going to repeat it again, early. Because <laughs> we got it. Really, One more time. <laughs> really, small, really small study that was designed mostly to focus on safety. Now, now the fact that there's immunogenicity and, and that there appears to be an antibody response and that there's other, the, the, the patients produced antibodies, that's definitely positive. But that antibody data is from eight patients. And the, relative, the the bar that it's being measured against is uh, equivalent or greater than the antibodies you see in recovered patients. We don't know if that's actually protective and for how long that's protective. So I just want to emphasize that it's a really long way before we can have any certainty that, that this vaccine or any vaccine produces a durable immune response on a population level. Um, and then beyond that, you, you always have to look at at safety issues, which which can emerge when you when you test in a much broader population, and at the highest dose, uh, the, the second of two doses of this vaccine, um, three people did did have flu-like symptoms. So there is the potential for that negative immune response, and we'll have to watch that closely. So there really is no substitute for running really big phase three trials, and there is still a significant failure risk, despite the fact that you have um, these nice early little pieces of data. Max, just refresh our memory here. Aside from Modana, what are the other potential vaccines that seem to be farthest along out there? Who else should we be listening to? Um, you know, there. Are, I mean, there are dozens, but there, uh, in terms of what's in human trials, um, another mRNA vaccine from Pfizer, um, Johnson and Johnson moving rapidly on a, on a viral vector vaccine. Um, then, then multiple candidates in China, uh, a couple of which are are sort of what I would describe as relative to Moderna, um, kind of older approaches. Um, so on one hand, they, they might have a harder time creating a really robust immune response. On the other hand, we understand them better um, than, than this messenger RNA vaccine, which, uh, again, it's worth emphasizing, has, has never been used in a, in a large approved vaccine in humans. So um, you, you really do have to, as much as it's nice to focus on this one kind of early um, you know, first mover, at least first report on of interim data. Um, you do want to develop a number of different candidates because the relative benefits and risks will only emerge when you run those much larger trials. Max Neeson of Bloomberg Opinion on the late stage phase. Oh, wait a second. Early. <laughs> Early. I think I got that. Yes. Uh, Max Neeson of Bloomberg Opinion joining us on that Moderna vaccine study that was very much in the early phases, but still promising nonetheless. Well, with more and more people working from home, one of the questions is, what does that mean for commercial real estate? Will companies need less space because they're finding that their employees can efficiently work from home or perhaps even more space because when they do eventually come back into the workspace, they may need more space to spread out. Uh, so it's really kind of a question about what this means for office space going forward. Lisa Nee, co-leader for the National Real Estate Practice at Eisner Amper joins us. Lisa, give us a sense of kind of how you guys think um, this pandemic and this work from home trend is going to impact commercial real estate going forward. Hi, thank you for having me this morning. So, you bet, our pleasure. Perfectly put. So when you examine and compare the loss of jobs from the office-using sectors to some of the other sectors, the office sector, professional service firms, finance, government, high-tech, they're seeing uh, fewer job losses than any other sector. But how is that really going to correlate, as you mentioned before, to the need for commercial office space? There's still always going to be a need for this office space, 
But here's the big question that you mentioned. The tension really is forming between the need for space for social distancing, which is going to demand more space per worker, versus the economic pressure of working from home. So as an example, when I started in the industry 25 years ago, the workforce model was three or three and a half people per thousand square feet versus right before the pandemic, it was six people per thousand square Mm. feet. So that really is going to be the dynamic of whether you're going to encourage your office workers to work from home or you're going to reconfigure spaces to give people that ability for social distancing. And so that's really the question and and communicating. It's also going to depend on the type of office um, job that the people are using within those buildings. So there's also going to be a pushback a little bit on the densification. So we're going to see co-working space really change the way that it's been doing in the in the past. The reworks, they're all going to be rethinking their models where it probably is going to become more of a managed service. And so now maybe the landlords are going to get in direct contact with those people that were using the co-working space and be able to create spaces for them directly with more managed amenities. So as I mentioned before, a lot of that's going to depend on the tenant and the location. And what we've really seen, which is even more interesting, is that the office space outside of urban cities are in really high demand. It's really, really hard to find. So these commercial real estate tenants are rethinking going into an elevator on the 30th floor, right? And so now those suburban markets with maybe three stories have seen a lot, a lot of activity. And so that new norm for office is really that tricky question of, of how, that, how it's going to be balanced going forward. Lisa, there's a lot there. Let's unpack a little bit of it. Uh, there, I want to I want to get into the shift away from densely populated urban areas because this is something a lot of people are wondering about, especially given the high valuations of commercial real estate in the big urban centers. Is that all dead in the water now? So. I- People are still going to be in the urban cities and want to work. Those those high tech jobs, the professional services firms. You know, they're still going to be in the in the larger cities. Those gateway cities um, are still going to call a demand for that. And so, I think it's just a rethinking and a repositioning of how you're using the space, rather than people just flooding and and uh, evacuating, so to speak, those densification markets. It's just figuring out how to get that tension to be where people are going to feel comfortable going back into that space. It's interesting, Lisa. I wonder how the workspace itself is going to evolve. When I started on Wall Street, you know, 30 years ago, everybody had the cubes, or if you were an officer, you had an office. And if you were a senior, you know, a managing director, you had a really big office. Um, but now, you know, it's much more of an open floor plan. That's certainly how uh, Bloomberg has been uh, configured uh, globally. How do you think the floor plans are going to evolve? Is, is the open floor plan where everybody's just kind of sitting with little to no barriers, is that a thing of the past here until maybe we get a vaccine or something different? I think it has to be, right? I think that people are going to have to feel comfortable and safe in their work environment. So whether they're going in on shifts, if there is some hoteling um, where it's an A or a B day, um, but people are going to have to feel that they're secure and and it's clean. And so that model of either putting up barriers um, or some sort of protection, uh, we even had some conversations with people about antiseptic finishes, non-touch access to things within the office, things where people are really going to have to feel that their space is their own space and they're going to feel comfortable um, and safe going back in, into the workforce. Um, and, and even in the urban cities, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've been speaking a little bit about, you know, people on the subways and, and 
getting back into the city. But once they're there getting in that elevator, they need to feel that they are safe and secure. Lisa Nee, co-leader for the National Real Estate Practice at Eisner Amper in New York. Thank you so much for being with us. And I will just say, talking about getting around the city, Paul, everyone's biking. And, yes. and really biking. And, and actually, this weekend, I, I purchased a new bike for, for one of my sons. And they were almost out of bikes. And the line yes. was around the block. I mean, really, this is sort of the, the mode of transportation now um, for, for yeah. people who don't want to go back to yeah, the subway it, system. It really is. I was just reading an interesting article on that on the Bloomberg Terminal today. I think sales were up you know, 30% in April. And they're tracking even higher uh, in the month of May. And they're, you know, Getting to the point where you mentioned, Lisa, there's a shortage uh, in a lot of areas <laughs> yes. here. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all evolves as, you know, we're seeing in New York City shutting down streets to allow more efficient foot traffic. Um, you're just wondering how much of this is going to be permanent or just kind of transitory. Yeah, and we'll hear more about the reopening plans coming up. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York State, talking about the latest there with the uh, daily coronavirus briefings that have become a key part of this entire era. J.C. Penney filing for bankruptcy on Friday. Just kind of, this is something that has been expected for a long time. This is a, uh, a department store chain that's really been on the bank of bankruptcy for some time. As department stores in general really feeling the brunt of the move towards e-commerce. To get a sense of what it means for not only J.C. Penney but the department store genre in general, uh, we turn to Bart, uh, Bert Flickinger. He's a managing director for Strategic Resource Group. Bert, thanks so much for joining us once again here. So, kind of put into context for us, Bert, kind of what this J.C. Penney uh, bankruptcy filing means for them. Is this a company that can continue? Is this a brand that can, can continue? Paul, well, yes. Uh, JCPenney's viable, uh, will continue. It got wrecked uh, by the Wall Street Pirates, uh, Bill Ackman, Pershing Square, etc. Et uh, Wall Street didn't understand Main Street. And the difference now, Paul and Lisa, is leadership. Penny's got great leadership with Jill Soltal, uh, great, te- uh, great store teams. And as you uh, mentioned a minute ago, Penny is getting rid of the stores and uh, the D and C malls that were impaired by being co-located by liquidated uh, Bonton and Herberger stores and uh, soon to be liquidated Sears stores. Now they'll stay in uh, mostly A malls uh, and B plus malls. So bet on J.C. Penny to win and bet on Neiman Marcus to lose. Just uh, I want to go back to what you said initially, Wall Street versus Main Street, and you view this as a Wall Street not understanding the story here and and kind of creating a bad scene for JCPenney. But what would you say to people who argue that the store doesn't have an identity that works with the modern era? They used to be the mail order company. Now, what are they? Uh, Lisa, you're bringing up key considerations, and what uh, Penny is is the uh, leading department store for United Nations of consumer constituencies, number one uh, with Spanish-speaking consumers, number one with people of color, number one uh, with Caucasian uh, consumers. Uh, And it doesn't uh, cater uh, to prestige, prestige, or luxury. It caters uh, to working people who want good quality. Penny's got great cotton, great color palettes. Uh, Sephora for beauty, uh, the number one partnership anywhere, anywhere worldwide. Sephora's flagship store in Paris actually draws more tourists uh, than the Eiffel Tower does every day. And they bring back the salons. And uh, in kitchenware and home goods, 
uh, just like Craig Coleman and Ashley Glazer, they're a great uh, team at, at Macy's and similar teams at Dillard's. Macy's is taking uh, advantage of the renaissance in food retail, uh, as is J.C. Penney, and selling a lot more kitchen and, and home items. So it was a question of uh, bad locations uh, and Ackman and company uh, wrecking retail, uh, leaving Penny on death's doorstep. And now uh, with a good team and a customer base uh, that loves Penny as an iconic retailer, uh, Penny will be viable. Your, your point, Lisa, jcpenny.com, long way to go, needs a lot of improvement. Uh, they needed to get out of appliances. They are. Uh, but they're t- Jill's taking corrective action uh, where needed, and Penny's going to go through a real reta- retail requiem uh, while, while the rest of uh, much of the rest of the department and specialty s- store retail is going through an accelerating retail ice age. So, Bert, I know they're shutting a bunch of stores here, maybe 30% of their stores. Is that enough, or do they need to shrink their footprint even more, do you think? Paul, Paul, your important point is key. The 30 percent is enough. It's 30 percent uh, that they should have done a few years ago. Uh, but but the, uh, to, to the company's credit, they had to wait uh, to see uh, what was going to be impaired and left vacant uh, by the Bonton, the Boscovs, uh, and the, the other uh, bankruptcies, uh, most, most notably Sears. So now... Uh, the surviving penny stores, on, on your key point, Paul, uh, will be co-located with Macy's and other leading anchor department store chains. And then we're, we're seeing uh, Chris Baldwin, Lee Delaney, uh, David Pico uh, taking great anchor department stores uh, and converting them to BJ's Wholesale Club. Uh, Craig Jelinek uh, and Rich Galante at Costco are taking great department stores, converting them to Costco. That's going to be a real revitalization of customer accounts that will help Penny and Macy's and other mall-based retailers across the country. We're speaking with Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. And I want to zoom out from JCPenney more broadly into the retail sector where we've seen bankruptcies really accelerating. Yes, this is because of the pandemic. However, we also are seeing a consolidation of power both by Amazon and Walmart, which will report earnings tomorrow. I'm just wondering, is this going to be the era where the big get bigger in, in retail and all of the weaker players ultimately have to completely rethink themselves or go out of business. Lisa, uh, big, big get better, uh, weak get boxed up for the bankruptcy boneyard. Uh, the difference is the keystone in the bridge to success is food retail. And for International Council of Shopping Centers, Tom Shea's great team with Stephanie Sigelski and Malachi Cavanaugh, we did a webinar, uh, 1,400 people, all shopping center owners and retail executives, uh, similar to the work we did for Ben Camerata and Carol Meyerwitz at TJX. If you have a high-volume locally owned uh, or uh, ch- uh, chain uh, that's based in food, uh, Penny, Macy's, uh, the other retailers, uh, hard goods, soft, soft goods, uh, general merch, tabletop, as America goes from uh, consuming food 45% at home to now 85 to 95% at home, we think that'll settle at 60 to 65. Anybody who sells food-related re- uh, retail items and merchandise as well, advertise as well, especially with language-specific consumer communication, will be winners. Yeah. And that's Macy's. Uh, Penny will come back the same way. And Lisa, to your 
point on Walmart. Walmart will probably report a dollar twenty a share tomorrow versus one oh two. Bert Flickinger, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry to cut you off. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group, talking about the landscape of retail. Fed Chair Jay Powell and all of the Federal Reserve governors have talked about the likelihood of a growing rash of bankruptcies among smaller business America. And there's a question of how quickly the federal government is getting aid to these businesses. On the front lines of that is Don McRae, Vice Chairman and Head of Commercial Banking at Citizens Financial Group uh, in Boston and Providence, Rhode Island. A question about how successful the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, has been so far and what's necessary to shore up this sector of the U.S. economy. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Can I just first uh, ask you to kind of grade the, the Paycheck Protection Program as Congress members debate how to change it, tweak it to make it more effective? How effective do you think it's been so far? I, I actually think, Lisa, that it's been a pretty good program. You know, our experience has been quite strong with our clients. We had about uh, 45,000 some odd clients apply for the program for around $5 billion. And um, we have now funded almost 99% of those of those loans. And they're, they're really going to small companies. Uh, I think 80, 92% of them were uh, companies with less than 25 employees. So it's really ending up in the hands of small businesses that um, that need the uh, the money. I think one of the challenges is depending where you are in the country, so we may be a little bit different being in the Northeast, is the makeup of uh, small businesses' expense bases varies widely. In some, take a restaurant, for example. In some parts of the country, labor is a very significant cost uh, component. But in another part of the country, say New York City, it really is rent. So some of the usability of the, um, of the, of the monies for employees versus other parts of the cost structure, I know is a pressure point for some of these small businesses. So, Don, given that uh, you're seeing some success with your client base, small and mid-sized businesses, with this first round of fiscal stimulus, is it your expectation that, again, dealing with your clients, that they really need a second round of stimulus as well? I think it depends uh, on the client. I think you've got the Main Street programs, which are beginning to roll out. Uh, Some clients will access those. They, they, They aren't fully formulated yet, but there's an allowance of, of people who receive the paycheck program to take, take Main Street money. I think the Fed is, is at work thinking about other ways to distribute <clears throat> kind of different forms of aid into, um, into the corporate America. So they, and, then, and then really the wild card is going to be how quickly things begin to open. I was just on the phone with someone in South Carolina, for example, and, and he said, uh, hey, the restaurants here are really busy. So business is back, and that's the first state that's reopened. So I think it's a combination of company and location and reopening rate. Don, there's been a a question as the middle market sector comes under pressure from COVID-19. There's a question about regional banks in general and an expected wave of consolidation that's expected to accelerate on the heels of this pandemic. What are you seeing in that space? And and are you interested in participating in an acquirer type mode? Um, You know, I'd say right now our focus is unilaterally uh, taking care of our customers. So, I think for the next six months, it's going to be all about helping our, our clients through uh, this disruption, um, and it's literally client by client. 
Um, and then I think it's it, the, the, the consolidation question will really be, you know, what, what does the industry look like when we're through this? Uh, we're quite optimistic based on what we're seeing right now. Um, and, uh, and then are there logical combinations? So it's not, it's not strategically something that we're focused on at this split second. So, Don, how has this pandemic and the work at home, work from home phenomena impacted your business? Uh, I suspect, you know, your bankers like to spend a lot of time on the road uh, meeting with their clients, you know, but now they're forced to work from home. How has it impacted your business? So I think I think it's actually been surprisingly good. Um, we don't think we've lost a beat in terms of uh, in terms of interaction with clients. Um, we actually um, think our efficiency has gone up uh, as people aren't on airplanes and aren't commuting and aren't doing all the things that take them away from actually doing work. Uh, we've been able to process everything through our operations units remotely um, without a hitch. Um, and actually, we we're finding the interaction with our clients, largely because we're in the middle of a crisis and they want to talk to us, you know, pretty seamless. Um, so we feel we feel good about it. It's actually surprised us. We thought going into this that we were going to have, you know, some challenges in terms of, of keeping productivity up and staying in touch with people. But I, I'd say it's had zero negative impact. And, and we'll, you know, irregardless of where we go, we'll be like this for a while, not necessarily working remotely, but, you know, the going to the restaurants and going to the sporting events and, you know, getting on airplanes and, and pitching will be at a very different level than it was for some, some period of time. So, Don, does that mean, just real quick here, 20 seconds, are you going to shrink your uh, footprint in office space? Haven't decided that yet. We, do, we, we may actually bring some things back on shore, which I think will be good. Um, so I, I'm not sure we'll actually need to shrink office space, but we'll, we'll, we'll be doing some onshoring. Don McCree, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts and opinions. Don McCree, Vice Chairman and Head of Commercial Banking for Citizens Financial Group based in Boston, uh, as well as Providence, Rhode Island. Interesting, kind of a, interesting, Lisa, you know, having a little to, to no negative impact, the kind of working from home issue. Yeah, we're hearing this from a lot of people, and I wonder, as time goes on, will the negative impact on new ideas and things that can kind of get generated when people pass themselves in the hallway, uh, will, that, will that be felt, or is this really going to be a referendum on office space? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, I think a lot of folks feel like being in the office has value, uh, but there's certainly now, I guess, an appreciable cost to that. So that might be changing uh, the calculus a little bit. So I'm sure a lot of companies will be thinking about this uh, going forward. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.